All those who are holding tickets outside will get in as fast as they can. I'm speaking not to you, ladies and gentlemen. I'm speaking to the crowd on the outside who seem to be standing rather reluctant to come in, and we're going to start this very soon. Welcome back to Worthy. I'm Ben. And I'm John. And on this episode, we are going to be singing The Hills Are Alive with the sound of music. There we go, John. <laughs> yeah, we're going to be talking about the 1965 Best Picture winner, The Sound of Music. But before we get into our discussion on the musical, I wanted to talk about film criticism. And the reason why film criticism with The Sound of Music go hand in hand is because there's a lot of, a lot of opinions about this movie. And there doesn't seem to be a middle ground. There seems to be two very extremes. That this movie is fantastic. It is one of the best movies ever made. It's nearly perfect. It's love Julie Andrews, love Christopher Plummer, love all the singing, love Austria. And then the other side is the, this movie sucks. It's corny. There's not really much story to it. There's, you know, very like limited characters. There's not much development with them. And I felt like just a perfect, like, let's just talk about film criticism and approach to film criticism because we've never really talked about that before and our own personal feelings about that. So without getting too much into the movie itself, because we will have that discussion, John, what do you think about the polarization just about this movie in general among film critics? I think it's interesting and it makes a lot of sense because I think we're at the crossroad of getting closer to the 70s, getting closer to like the, even the late 60s where we're pushing the genre forward. We're getting a lot more independent films and we're pushing like the medium of film in terms of what we're speaking about, what we're talking about and what we're kind of like representing on screen. But Sound of Music is kind of like the end almost of an era. We, Of course, we'll get other musicals moving forward, but it is kind of the end of an era when it comes to classic golden age Hollywood, the way the film is presented the way the musical kind of is carried throughout and the music carries throughout the film which is almost the way the story is told is through music and i think a lot of people going into the film i just think they want something a little more serious and something that doesn't have as much joy which is interesting because the whole movie is about that so i think it, it makes sense because the movie is so it's cutesy in a way even though we have this like World War II backdrop with the Nazis it is very sweet. And I think things that are very like sweet and charming just annoy people, right? Too much sugar is too sweet for a lot of people. And I think when people try to consume something like Julie Andrews, who's just like a big ball of sunshine, it, it becomes a little bit too much for people. But what do you, what do you think, Ben? Why do you think it's a divisive film? I think that you kind of hit on that with that. It's the end of an era. It's the middle of the 60s. It comes at a time. And we'll talk about some movies with the Oscars from that year. But at that time, there's kind of the old Hollywood, new Hollywood, like really forming. We've talked about that, you know, like Marty, something like in the late 50s or, you know, early 60s was kind of like the end of like our grandparents, beginning of our parents. But this is like the first like real stop for like our parents' generation that's like, hey, like old Hollywood maybe isn't part of our love of cinema, whereas like the new Hollywood and new ideas, freedom and film is what we more, more want to see. And in this movie, there's a lot of old old cultural things, you know, you know that the, the dad is very dominant, is very male dominant in terms of how the family runs. And then you have, you know, someone like Maria who's like just had some love and some feminine femininity and all of a sudden everything changes, you know, for the family. 
So I think like, that's why the film is just so de- divisive is because of the time of the, when it came out that it just completely split, I think, audiences down the middle. And at the time, it I don't think it was like as much of the criticism was coming more like later on in time. I think people look have looked back on it and they're just like, oh, is this really like the best? Like, I feel like how we have talked about like other movies before in the podcast, they look at it as this movie is like, oh, is that really like the best picture of 1965 and blah, blah, blah. Like, why doesn't this work? Why doesn't that work? So it's it's interesting that this movie in particular is so polarizing, which is why some of the ratings for this movie are lower than I feel like that I would have rated it and anticipated it, which might be a little spoilers for way down the line in this podcast. But regardless, I also want to talk about just movie critics in general and, and their roles in filmmaking and how movies are received because I know that whenever I talk to people when they want to go see a movie, their immediate thought is, well, what's the Rotten Tomatoes score? <laughs> I put you know my little worthy podcast hat on and I'm just like, well, actually, Rotten Tomatoes is not an indicative stat. <laughs> well, actually. <laughs> well, actually. And so... And that gets into like a bigger thing with me in film criticism, which is who fuck cares what you have to say at the end of the day? Like, like who really like a movie is about a personal experience and how you take it in and what you think of it. And I've like definitely said before about like this podcast is that, you know, we're not I don't think we're, we're film critics, but we're definitely commenting on it. And then, you know, film Twitter is a big thing for people who are very into the Oscars and, you know, movies that are contending more fringe movies you know and that can be extremely polarizing because if you're not like agreeing with entirely on film twitter maybe you're looked at as like oh well, you just like the mainstream stuff which isn't necessarily fair because i like the mainstream stuff and like this unique stuff that's given being given awards and there's never really like, that happy medium and then film critics like really take it to that extreme where they just you know they add flowery words they, they make it sound so sophisticated when at the end of the day Maybe it doesn't need to be like that. Maybe film criticism doesn't need to be so like, oh, like, like, look at this art and like, you know, it's so like cool and like, blah, blah. and just like whatever to me at the end of the day, which is also funny because I'm saying that as a person with a film podcast. <laughs> so there's a lot of, you know, battles with that. So, but John, like, what do you like when you see film criticism? Like, how do you one? How does it like impact your experience with watching movies? But also like, what are your general thoughts on? film criticism and today and how that maybe aids, maybe dissuades people from seeing movies. It's interesting because we grew up in such a weird era for film criticism where anyone could be a film critic. There wasn't a degree, a journalism degree that you had to get. You had to go to a publication like Variety or Hollywood Reporter. You could just turn on your webcam. You know, you could even just flip on the switch on your computer's webcam and just talk about a movie and say you're a film critic which kind of just like blew up the world of film criticism to me. And the way I looked at film criticism was so drastically different because of that. I mean, before our generation in in the 90s when we were just little babies, people were still reading the newspaper for their film reviews. Like without the internet to kind of show us around globally to get such a wide range of reviews, people were reading magazines and the newspaper to get their film criticism. So with media kind of transforming it and then personal media with things like YouTube. And now there's 
I think I talked to you about this pretty recently. There's like a TikTok creators that just, you know, were promoting films and, and doing almost behind the scenes content that are now invited to like movie premieres. And all they did was turn their phone towards them and just talked about a movie and called themselves a critic. So it used to be such an inspiring thing for me when I was younger growing up and being like, well, I just like movies a lot. I like talking about them. But like, I know I would never call myself a film critic. Like, but then the question really comes, what qualifies you to be a film critic? Is the number of films you watch, the education that you have, do you need to have a journalism degree? You know, what qualifies someone as a critic? And I also love cooking. So I always think of those two as really similar, like the people that call themselves a chef and the people that are just cooks. And that is a really interesting thing for films as well. The people that call themselves critics and the people that are just film commentators you know i don't think we've ever once and i don't think we would ever say it that we on this podcast worthy are film critics no we're two people that are definitely cinephiles we've seen so many movies more movies than probably most of our friends and the people that we know but we also just love talking about movies and analyzing film and we analyze movies on this podcast not to brag more than a lot of online media critics do and it's because why would you spend an hour and a half, two hours talking about a movie when you can crank out a review that's eight minutes long that two million people will watch and then you can put an ad on it and make tons of money. So we've come to this weird area where film criticism is so like true film criticism, people that I opinions that I actually trust and will like listen to and it film criticism that is so detailed and so well written that will make me consider films in a different light. And, you know, that just doesn't really happen on media when it comes to YouTube and that kind of film criticism. So I, I've kind of, I love some film critics, you know, there's like the Chris Stuckman's out there on YouTube that I like really love, but that's more of a, a fandom, like a commentary fandom of just loving and appreciating film. So I, I want to pose that question to you, Ben, what do you like, what, what makes a film critic? Well, what what kind of qualifications do you need to be considered a film critic? I, I wonder about that a lot, honestly. And, and I don't really have a good answer because I see so many people on Twitter, on, on Instagram, you know, being, being like running our Instagram page and looking at all the different profiles. I, you know, when we started, I was so intimidated <laughs> by the film community on Instagram. And then once we started gaining followers and, you know, seeing what other people were posting, I was like, this is, most people aren't really just saying much. They're just repeating the same exact things over and over again, which is, you know, maybe we repeat stuff that other people have said, but I feel like we approach it in, in very different ways and we try to be engaging it and really break it down the way I feel like it should be done. And so what a film critic should be is someone who's willing to be receptive, who's willing to say, like, maybe I don't have the best opinion on this, but this is how it made me feel. But most film critics don't do that. Most film critics look at a movie, they try to add X, Y, and Z with a flowery word here or there to, and trying to be like, well, no, my opinion is right. And anyone who thinks that doesn't agree with me is just absolutely wrong and doesn't know anything about good cinema, <laughs> air quotes around that. So it, it's infuriating to me. And, and I, you know, everyone, again, like going back to the whole like, oh, well, what's a Rotten Tomatoes score? It bothers me because no, because no one really can just jump into a movie with no expectations. Don't, don't know anything about it. Don't know what the scores are. Don't know if people like it or love it or feel you know mid about it. That's how I like to approach movies and go into any movie is I want to know almost nothing about it because I feel like it would help me 
and it formed my own opinion. So then when I do see reviews, I do see critics, you know, points, it makes me, you know, either validates, you know, what I was thinking or it makes me feel like, okay, they don't, their opinion doesn't matter because what really matters is my opinion and what I think about the movie because it's how I experienced it and how it made me feel at the end of the day. I think that's one of the best things about film and about art in general is that you can't grade it. There's no, the only thing you can like really grade it on is if like technically from if it's good or not. And even that people love, people love, like we said before, schlocky bad movies. The amount of people that I know would prefer to watch a bad movie because it's fun and funny to them is not for me, but I'm the person who would rather watch the 1940s drama that nobody else would rather watch that no one wants to spend the two and a half hours on. And that's fine. Everyone can have all their different opinions and what they like and what they don't like, you know, as long as you agree, Lord of the Rings is the greatest thing ever made. (laughs) But besides that point, it really, you know, it doesn't film criticism is only as good as you want it to be. And as helpful as you want it to be at the end of the day, it's a fun community. I think that to be a part of and to, to see interact with, but I don't, I don't, I don't want to say like I don't value their opinions as much, but it doesn't matter to me what they think at the end of the day. What matters what I think and what you think. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I've heard people argue over films being subjective and other films not being subjective. It's such an interesting medium where you could say, well, that shot is overexposed. And I can tell you it's overexposed because you can see the sky, for instance, is blown out. And it's so beyond white that there's literally no color information. It's just so blown out. But it, does that make an, it a negative, right? Like, because it's an overexposed image, am I still getting the message of the image? Am I still understanding the story? Do I still understand the characters? Like, that happens constantly. There's mistakes in movies constantly. Even movies that I would call perfect, there still are mistakes. So it's... To me, it's always been subjective. I mean, it's stories at the end of the day. So it's whether you kind of agree with the story, you agree with characters. And sometimes people only like films where they agree with their characters. And I think that's just not a lot of films, especially as we keep moving forward and we get to the 70s. It's, you know, we're dealing with kind of interesting, darker characters. So it is a subjective medium. There's no way to say one film is better than the other. It's all just your own subjective opinion. But when it comes to critics, there's just no line. That's the weird, blurry ground that we're in. It's like someone is a critic if you're called a critic almost. Like it's like you you have to earn that title in a way to me at this point. Either you're hired by a publication or you're just so consistent and you're so on top of it. Maybe you've dedicated years or done so many movies at a certain point, then you can earn that title as a film critic. But that is still such a up-in-the-air title that, like, who owns that in a way? And with new media, I don't think anybody owns it anymore. Like, the power to the people, really. And whether that's good or not, I think it is. I think everyone can share their opinion online, and that's great. Whether they call themselves a critic or not, that's that's for me to argue and debate, I think, with you. Yeah, I think I would only want to be called a critic just so I can get those free movies. Yeah, yeah. And get all those screeners <laughs> and be able to watch something before anybody else. But I'm also willing to pay the money because, as you have to also remember, and this is one of my criticisms of critics, you get to go watch the movies for free and you get to talk about them and you get to stay on your little soapbox while us, we pay for the movies, audiences go out there. So just my little like little nitpick at, at critics who, you know, 
sometimes think that they're better than others. But there are some really good critics out there that I do follow that I like hearing their opinions and seeing their opinions. But anyways, John, I think people really want to know our opinion on if The Sound of Music is worthy of the Best Picture Award of 1965. The Sound of Music. In 1930s Austria, a young woman studying to become a nun is sent by her convent to become a governess to seven children of a widowed naval officer. Maria is a free-spirited young Austrian woman studying to become a nun at Nonberg Abbey in Salzburg in 1938. Her youthful enthusiasm and lack of discipline caused some concern. Mother Abbess sends Maria to the villa of retired naval officer Captain Georg von Trapp, to be governess to his seven children, Liesel, Frederick, Louisa, Brigida, Marta, and Gretel. The captain has been raising his children alone using strict military discipline following the death of his wife. Although the children misbehave at first, Maria responds with kindness and patience, and soon the children come to trust and respect her. While the captain is away in Vienna, Maria makes play clothes for the children from drapes that are to be changed. She takes them around Salzburg in the mountains while teaching them how to sing. When the captain returns to the villa with Baroness Elsa Schrader, a wealthy socialite and their mutual friend Max Dittweiler, they are greeted by Maria and the children returning from a boat on the lake that concludes with their boat overturning. Displeased by his children's clothes and the activities in Maria's impassioned plea that he gets closer to his children, the captain attempts to fire Maria. However, he hears singing coming from inside the house and astonished to see his children singing for the Baroness. Filled with emotion, the captain joins his children, singing for the first time in years. The captain apologizes to Maria and asks her to stay. Impressed by the children's singing, Max proposes he enter them in the upcoming Salzburg Festival, but the captain disapproves of letting his children to sing in public. During a grand party at the villa, where guests in formal attire waltz in the ballroom, Maria and the children look on from the garden terrace. When the captain notices Maria teaching Kurt the traditional Lawnler folk dance, he steps in and partners Maria in a graceful performance, culminating in a close embrace. Confused about her feelings, Maria blushes and breaks away. Later, the Baroness, who noticed the captain's attraction to Maria, hides her jealousy by indirectly convincing Maria that she must return to the Abbey. However, Mother Abbess learns that Maria has stayed in seclusion to avoid her feelings for the captain, so she encourages her to return to the villa to look for her purpose in life. When Maria returns to the villa, she learns about the captain's engagement to the Baroness and, and agrees to stay until they find a replacement governess. However, the Baroness learns that the captain's feelings for Maria haven't changed, so she peacefully calls off the engagement and returns to Vienna while encouraging the captain to express his feelings for Maria, who marries him. While the couple are on their honeymoon, Max enters the children in the Salzburg festival against their father's wishes. Having learned that Austria has been annexed by the Third Reich, the couple return to their home, where Captain receives a telegram ordering him to report to the German naval base at Bremerhaven to accept a commission in the Kriegsmarine. Strongly opposed to the Nazis in the Anschluss, the captain tells his family that they must leave Austria immediately. That night, the Von Trapp family attempt to flee to Switzerland, but they are stopped by a group of brown shirts, led by Hans Zeller, waiting outside the villa. 
To cover his family's tracks, the captain maintains they are headed to the Salzburg Festival to perform. Zeller insists on escorting them to the festival, after which his men will accompany the captain to Bremerhaven. Later that night at the festival, during their final number, the Von Trapp family slips away and seeks shelter at the abbey, where Mother Abbess hides them in the cemetery crypt. Zeller and his men soon arrive and search the abbey, but the family is able to escape using the caretaker's car. When the soldiers attempt to pursue, they discover their cars will not start as two of the nuns have sabotaged their engines. The next morning, after driving to the Swiss border, the Von Trapp family make way on foot across the frontier into Switzerland to safety and freedom. The Sound of Music was directed by Robert Wise. Written by <laughs> Ernest Lehman from the stage musical book by Howard Lindsay and Russell Krauss. Produced by Robert Wise and associate producer Saul Chaplin. Cinematography by Ted D. McCord. Film editing by William Reynolds. Production design by Boris Levin. And costume design by Dorothy Jeekins. The Sound of Music stars Julie Andrews as Maria. Christopher Plummer as Captain Georg Von Trapp. Eleanor Parker as the Baroness. Richard Hayden as Max Detweiler. Peggy Wood as Mother Abbess. Charmaine Carr as Liesel Von Trapp. Heather Menzies as Louisa Von Trapp. Nicholas Hammond as Frederick Von Trapp. Dwayne Chase as Kurt Von Trapp. Angela Cartwright as Brigitte Von Trapp. Debbie Turner as Marta Von Trapp. And Kim Carath as Gretel Von Trapp. Anna, Anna Lee as Sister Margarita. Portia Nelson as Sister Berth. Ben Wright as Her Zeller. Daniel Trujit as Rolf. Norma Varden as Frau Schmidt. Marnie Nixon as Sister Sophia. And Avain Baker as Sister Bernice. As we were getting ready for this podcast, John brought up a very interesting point about the title of <laughs> this movie. That is the sound of music and not just sound of music. And in the, obviously the opening song, the hills are alive with the sound of music. And immediately when we were, we were going back and forth about this, I immediately thought like, well, that's the conceit to the movie is the sound of music exists within the world so that it's a musical. And I think that that ties into the whole cr film criticism aspect of this movie is because people are like, well, it's way too much of a musical and, and it, it falls way into so many of those traps I feel like that musicals can have that they're just too corny and, and too this and it's too shallow in terms of character development. But the film lyrics, the lyrics of the musical are saying the sound of music, that the sound of music exists within this world. So I just want to know if that helps you, John, jump into the storyline at all. Well, it's, it's an absolutely stunning opening to a film, much like West Side Story introducing us to this beautiful world and this beautiful small little village surrounded by these mountains. And to me, it's not even, she directly mentions how, you know, the, the hills and being where she is in the scenery that she's in is what's inspiring her to feel the sound of music. And to me, it's almost, it's not even just the scenery. It's like beautiful nature in general. And it may not even just be beautiful nature. It may be just things that are beautiful in life, things that kind of like lift your spirits, things that are like so touching that we can't even really explain them in a way, in a way that music is as well, where, you know, we can talk about notes, musicality, instruments, but there's something so, so hard to describe about music because there's nothing, you can look at a page and see notes, you can hit play on Spotify and hear a song, but what are you hearing? There's nothing there, right? It's not like a an image that is kind of projected in front of us or thrown up on a screen that we can visually see and, and depict. 
when it comes to something like audio, it's just completely gone. It's hard to really explain what music is. So it's almost reminds me of what the sound of music is, is, is music in general, but the way that music can kind of fill your soul and not just listening to a song or getting a song stuck in your head, like the sound of music definitely does, but it's almost like the song of life, the, the way that your surroundings and the way that, you know, looking at the world in such a personal and beautiful light will fill you with the sound of music. So that's such an interesting question because that opens such a bigger can of worms than I think a lot of people even look at this film as. I think they look at it as much of a surface level love story that has a lot of great catchy songs in it. But there's a lot more to this film, I think, than than just that. Yeah, and just to add on to the idea of music and 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 why it's so important and why it seems to be the driving force in this movie and it seems to be like music is life is Maria says to uh, the mother, she says, I just couldn't help myself. The gates were open and the hills were beckoning. I can't seem to stop singing wherever I am. So she's not, you know, what you could view music and musicals as very internal and like what the, their thoughts are and just interaction where she's saying, no, literally, like, I can't stop singing. I have this problem. I'm so happy when I see nature and the hills and everything that I, I literally just need to sing. It's And I think that that's, it, it's a beautiful thing, I think, about Maria's character. It's also like the ultimate form of self-expression in a way. A lot of people look at, at, it, at it as romantic in a way, and obviously that's what this film's going. But the film does more than just that. It's not Music is not just about, you know, getting your lover to finally fall in love with you as much as it is about teaching children the world in music by showing them this beautiful nature that they're surrounded by when they're really just kind of stuck in this insane mansion that they live in. And while you step outside the mansion, it's this bright green, just like never ending vast hills that could just go on and on and on. And just what an absolutely beautiful opening shot. I mean, I we love the opening to West Side Story where we're seeing like the helicopter footage. And it's so interesting to see this kind of same idea taken to such a different rural area. And even better cinematography than I think of the opening of West Side Story, which is amazing and, and my one of my favorite openings I think that we've seen out of any of the films so far. But I might even love this opening even more and... The way that we're kind of like introduced to the film by just kind of like floating through the clouds in a way, almost as like an angel that's kind of like looking down at this small town. And it's really beautiful. I mean, the helicopter shot that kind of like flies into Julie Andrews as she gives us our opening number is just stunning. It, It is crazy. I mean, there is a big like match cut to her kind of giving the first note, but I just love the opening introduction and and the, the big vast nature of it. Yeah, I, I definitely do as well. It's It captures so much beauty of not just Austria and where, where they were filming it, but also it, it creates such it creates such a good feel to the movie. It, it gives tone. It's that, okay, we're going to be like floating, like the floating feeling as you're floating around through the city and watching from this bird eyes view gives a really good sense of that this is magical. That you're going to be floating and levitating out of your chairs almost as you're watching this movie because it's something new to experience and, and, and something fun and different. And I wanted to point out that opening shot because there was, you know, you're, you watch this movie and you're like, how the hell did they get that opening shot of her, you know, spinning around and the camera just like, you know, flies into her 
you know, was that fake in the studio or not? This was all real. And they used a helicopter to do that. And there is some, you know, Tim in this about like how they're actually going to pull this off. And one of the camera operators, Paul Beeson, knew that you had to do it with a helicopter without casting any shadows. And you had to have the camera operator hanging out of the <laughs> helicopter itself, like strapped to the side of it. No one wanted to do it. So he decided he would do it. And so he was holding the camera as it was flying in, you know, towards Julie Andrews. And I've seen interviews of Julie Andrews talking about how every single time the helicopter would fly past her, she would just get knocked down, grass all over her, dirt in her mouth, and she would just get right back up. And I'm like, all right, let's do it again. <laughs> and I think like that, like happiness and, and that tone and that she brings to the character and to her performance really elevates everything else and, and makes it feel more authentic and Again, then watching that shot as it's completed and edited together, it's perfect. It's a really great intro. And then it, it sets like what Wise is trying to do with the look of the film, how he is trying to, you know, with West Side Story, the beginning was all about the dancing and bringing to the city and like it's not like the rough and tumbleness in New York where it's like, no, this is a very graceful Austria. It's very, you know, like nature and vibes going on, you know, just chill and relax and that's it's a very great way to start a movie so yeah that intro is probably it's iconic for its look but it's also a great way to start a movie and bring you into the story itself so from there john what, you know do you want to talk about how the nuns are like how the hell do we deal with <laughs> maria character or should we skip right to when she meets the children because i feel like the nun part of this is it's an interesting like dichotomy to Maria's character, but it also is like one of the aspects of the movie where I'm like, this isn't the strongest thing. Like she could have been really anything, but she like, we could have figured out many different ways to get her there. I know the real story. She was trying to be a nun. So I guess like, that's what, why they included that. But also it's like, they could have done this many different ways, but I just wanted to throw that out to you. Like where, where you wanted to go next. It's interesting because the way the nuns are introduced is, is a very comical way. I really loved it. I mean, we have all the opening shots and introduction to the actual like choir singing of in the church, but then we get introduced to the main kind of group of nuns that know Maria well. And yeah, you're right. I mean, a movie that's, almost three hours long, you're kind of like, is there anything you can cut that will like progress us faster? And, you know, I guess you could cut the opening song with the nuns, but, you know, it tells us a lot about Maria. And like our opening scene obviously tells us a lot about her. She's distracted. As soon as she hears the church bells, she's like, oh sh shit, I'm late. She like is so taken by singing and the scenery that she is so distracted by her actual real duties as training to be a nun so i think maria is a really important song to kind of express who she is i mean we get some of that in the opening scene but by having the nuns kind of like show their disdain but also love for her like basically saying that she's definitely not right to be a nun but she is such a like a wonderful person to be around the one nun talks about how she's just hilarious and always makes her laugh and I think that's a good representation of who Marie is. So I, I do think that's kind of necessary to for us to introduce us to the nuns and kind of introduce us to this world and how she doesn't really fit in this world. I think there's other songs that we can talk about later on that can kind of maybe I don't really think need to be there. But how do you feel about the nuns uh, and, and their opening song with Maria? Well, nuns in movies always <laughs> scare me because there's like 
the you know the Blues Brothers where like the nun is just whacking Jake <laughs> and Elliot like all like yeah. throwing them down the stairs and it being so cruel and punishing. I feel like that's the normal trope. Whereas these nuns are not like that at all. They're they're funny. They're they're willing to have some adventure and allow some of that to seep into their lives. And what I also like about it is it's not very religious. It's not very in your face. There's no like, oh, like praise Jesus. Like he'll like think about what Jesus would do in this moment or like pray to God and your answers will be there. It's very just like, yeah, you should go live your life. You have a life like explore that, you know, that becoming a nun. And, and this is later on the film. They're just like, yeah, well, becoming a nun is a very strong personal choice to make. So really think about that. Really think about where your life and, and how you want want it to be and how you want to, to fall out. And so I'm very, I, I like that about these nuns, that they're not very religious and not very in your face about it. The song Maria, it, it's definitely nice. It's one of the songs that it feels like it goes on for a bit, but it, it really doesn't. It's only like three minutes. Yeah. But I think like that's the drag a little bit is that you have this great and grand opening sequence to then Oh, here are the nuns in the abbey. And you're just like, but I want to see Maria. And so you have to wait a couple minutes to see her. But I like the lyrics. I love the, how do you solve a problem like Maria? How do you catch a cloud and pin it down? Mm-hmm. How do you find a word that means Maria? A flibber, a flibber chid bit, a will the wisp, a clown is the last <laughs> line of the chorus. So yeah, they, they really like hammer home that she's not like normal people. She's and I. Put, I should put air quotes around normal. She's not like us. She's very happy and very outgoing. She's very expressive. And it's something that they're not used to having around at the Abbey. Yeah. And how does the film start with us just kind of floating in clouds? So how do you pin a cloud down? You know, like it's a representation of Maria, this like ever floating free person that they all kind of know that she just really can't be stopped. Like she's going to be who she's going to be no matter what. No one can change that really. Yeah, and this is also where some of the, like, I wish I did have some more backstory because I would have, I would have been okay if they had like some scene or moment where they're like, well, why did you want to become a nun? Like, what was it that really drove you to become that? Like, that made you want to become that? I know the real life Maria, like, talked about as soon as she had like sort of a tough bringing up that she felt that, I, I, I'm trying to remember exactly, but it sounded like that she had a moment where she was so thankful for the things she had that she had to be thankful for like God in a way. And that's why she wanted to become a nun. But then that obviously went out the window when she meets the kids and, you know, falls in love with the captain Von Trapp. So it's a, it's a, it's fine to have, I think the nuns in there, but it's definitely a part of like a three hour runtime where I'm like, Hmm, how could I bring this down a little bit? I'd cut the nuts yeah. or change up that storyline a little bit. I think we get a really great introduction to Julie Andrews as Maria and just how great of a physical performer she is. And I, I haven't seen that many movies with her. Obviously, I've seen Mary Poppins. And there's probably some that I just don't even know off the top of my head that I've probably seen, especially some older films like Princess Diaries, where you don't really think about that being Julie Andrews, you know. But she is such a physical presence in this movie. Like, the way she runs into the nuns and she's, like, stopping and her hair's flying everywhere. And I, I love the way they designed her hair to be perfectly cut off exactly like the nun's outfit is. But it's, like, kind of separating her from the rest of the nuns with her cute little blonde hair kind of, like, sticking out of her headdress. 
but she just gives such a charming performance and it's not just obviously the amazing singing and the songwriting and her amazing actual acting performance but there's so much nuance into her, the goofiness of this character and she fills in the blanks i think a lot and i think we get that with i have confidence where you know she's being told that she has to you know <laughs> be a, a governess for seven children and I just love the line reading where she just goes seven like she's just so shocked by how many kids like and how like how is that even possible especially surrounded by a bunch of nuns who have never had kids like I think it makes it even more drastic and intense but uh, I have confidence is a really charming sweet song I think it carries us into how she's feeling she's trying to be motivated yet she kind of trips and stumbles on her feet but she still has confidence. You know, she may stumble, she may trip, but she has that confidence, which was a fun fact that I saw the behind the scenes that that wasn't intentional. And I think there's a there's a couple different things in this film that I think weren't intentional on the day of filming, but they kind of kept it because it, it adds a lot of naturalism to the film. So what do you think about I Have Confidence and just Andrew's really just charming and elevated performance? Yeah, I love her performance. She, you know, people say like, oh, this is sort of like Mary Poppins in a way that it's like the Austrian version of Mary Poppins, which I can totally see that, like where that idea would come from because she's coming in and, you know, taking care of the children and, and showing them like how fun life can be and this and that. But I think that she adds more. There's like a different, there's a unique kind of love. There's not this like magical aspect that Mary Poppins has. This feels very real and rooted and that people can just be really happy, that people can really just enjoy life, the simple things, and and how that can mold them to interact with other people in life. And in terms of Julie Andrews, I mean, to come out with Mary Poppins and then do this back-to-back, there's, like, stories about her singing supercalifragilisticexpialidocious to the children on set. And that was before <laughs> Mary Poppins that came out when they were filming it. And they were like, wow, this is a crazy song. And then it <laughs> came out in the movie. So she kind of embodied that a little bit on the set and in terms of I have confidence my the really only thing I have to say it's a good song is there's no way she can freely swing around <laughs> that guitar case like that that would be so irresponsible for not just the guitar but like smacking around your body like that it just would not work that's not really funny I never even thought about that too I've never carried a, a guitar more than a couple times so I just didn't even think about that at all it's hilarious that's so funny yeah. She is just absolutely just a dream. And it's so funny to think about people comparing this to Mary Poppins. And I'm like, yeah, that's such a surface level interpretation of these two films. Same actress hanging out with children. It's like it, they're drastically different movies. And not only just purely off the, the fantasy magical element, the, the crazy color and the cartoonish style of Mary Poppins. But she's going to a house with very strict, disciplined children. Mary Poppins is about like fixing these like rotten children, basically like fixing spoiled children and kind of making them good again in a way. And this is almost like the inverse of Mary Poppins. This is like coming into a family that is so rigid and, and so strict in a way that is like damaging and harmful to their children. They're not experiencing joy, happiness, life, such things like music, you know, and introducing music into their life is drastically what changes them and drastically is what changes the plot and these characters kind of interacting. So I don't, it's crazy to call these two films similar beyond it just stars the same actress and it has a lot of children in it really. Yeah, I totally agree. And it's, you know, to get a little emotional for a second, like I can really relate to that because, you know, I lost my mom when I was younger, 
the children lost you know their mom a couple of years before Maria comes in and music for me was a big thing that helped me through my grief music for them seems to be what they were missing the entire time i mean they make mention that georg at least it makes it seem like georg used to sing used to have that love but lost it as soon as his wife dies so the fact that it gets reintroduced and the children have that now really emphasizes the importance of music and just the joy of life and and how you can find happiness i think that this movie does a really good job of capturing that emotion of of grief but then the emotions of like overcoming that and what can get introduced to you know make it better for you so i i certainly appreciate all of that and the movie then just progresses more you know the children are i wouldn't say like spoiled or rotten they're just like how do we get our father's attention that's like literally yeah. like what liesel says it's like well we do all these mean things or these pranks on you because how else would father know yeah, that we exactly. exist it's like they need to cause harm to get any sort of attention so but god i hate the whistle the whistle that <laughs> the captain uses to connect <laughs> yeah, the children bad. not only is it just painful to listen to but my super sensitive little puppy miso which is losing her mind every time that whistle went off and that scene as you know <laughs> with the introduction to the children and hearing the whistle they whistle like maybe 15 times throughout that entire scene just like non-stop my dog was losing it every time that i watched that scene but it's interesting I, yeah, and there's no. I was gonna say it's just the great line of when she blows the whistle at Captain Von Trapp, and she's like, "Well, how would I get your attention?" You're absolutely right, and I think that is what separates this film from a lot. You know, people look at this and they're like, "Oh, it's one of the last musicals of the golden era," and I'm no. You can see progression in this film. You can see a woman who is not just commanded. She's not just there to sing a song and then get married. Yes, there's elements of that. Yes, they could probably go into more Maria and the captain's relationship and why they really love each other. But we have a really defiant woman here who constantly is telling a man no, and not even just no about like, you can't date me, you can't have sex with me. It's like, you're doing this wrong. Like, she's like commanding him that he's a bad father, like even worse than just like, you're a bad man. Like, you're bad to these children, essentially. And it's done in a way that's like yeah, subtle it, at first, but then I think, you know, slowly progresses and gets more intense. Yeah. And she's not a sexual character at all. I, I don't know if they were even trying to make the Baroness like a sexual character. I think they tried to do her like clothing and makeup a little bit more mature and elegant than they did of Maria. She's, I don't know. I think she's supposed to be like in her twenties and like the real life version. And even in the real life version, the stories are like, she didn't necessarily fall in love with the captain at first. She fell in love with the children and married the captain out of yeah. like really necessity. And then they developed their relationship and fell in love, which I, I think it, it, that's like beautiful and sweet that to have the children like like that's the common bond before your relationship. I think that that's a very good basis uh, for it to come. But yeah, but she is not a sexual character. She's very strong. She's headstrong in, in all the right ways. And it's kind of what makes him fall in love with her is he's like, wow, you're really commanding. And, and I and I need that, you know, as someone who's in the navy like i yeah. i need that structure in my life yeah. it seemed like the baroness was just like and i don't think that the baroness does anything wrong or like they try to like that's the other thing is like she's not really a villain in the movie she's just no. like an unfortunate yes. like bystander that, in all of this and so she so it, yeah at the end of the end of all this is just the baroness wants to be more flirty and fun but then the captain obviously wants the 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 happy and fun yes, version yes. of maria and 
this movie is, is so much deeper and it's it's so much more progressive than a lot of the musicals that we've seen so far and and even with the baroness you know if this was a movie made in the 50s maybe even going back to the 40s the baroness would be evil she would be like such a mean person she would be like carrying around her dog everywhere she'd be like saying how she like wants money from the captain but no it's the opposite she's really rich she's like inherited all this money i think family money and she actually loves the captain and it's like a revelation where you're like she wasn't really trying to backstab maria she was just basically trying to assert her dominance in a way that anyone would if they were about to you know, marry someone and they see an outsider coming in and possibly ruining that. You know, she's not like a mustache twirling villain who's like out to get Maria because she's so charming and she's not, you know, like, and it, it even comes out later in the film when, you know, the captain kind of tells Baroness that like they're not right for each other. She's, she, it's a great joke where she's like, you know, I should have just found a man that needs my money, like a person that like desperately needs my attention because you don't need that from me. Yes, you like me, but we don't have that true emotional connection like the captain and Maria do. So there's a lot more subtext and a lot more subtlety to this than definitely most of the musicals that we've seen. And most of the male female relationships, I think we've seen in any of the films so far. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with all that. And it's a nice change. It It's kind of the thing that I was talking about with the old Hollywood and new Hollywood kind of coming together in this movie is that you give a lot of, agency and thought to the female character for most of the movie and then you don't let like the guy like completely take over like he's kind of fooled uh, many of the times he's kind of like whoa like where did this come from like like how how did i end up in this place how did i end up having these feelings like how like how did this happen he does not really in control which is something that he obviously wants at the beginning but as soon as maria comes into the picture he loses all control over and I'm not going to be like everything goes wild, but just like just loses control of like his dominance of his control of the yeah no family. you're absolutely right and you know we've been hitting on all the songs but since we're talking about Christopher Plummer as Georg I just you know I love characters that are just like stubborn angry maybe they have like a hard shell that they've kind of like put up on their exterior to to not expose the real pain that's inside of them you know i've always loved characters like that where they get kind of chipped away at their outer surface and someone like touches their heart in a way and i've always loved that and i've loved characters like that so much that have literally made my thesis short film all about a character like that so like that's how much i love characters <laughs> like the captain and i think my favorite moment in this entire film is the moment where we have Maria coming and meeting the Baroness for the first time. And it's such a funny introduction because it's Maria taking the kids in like a canoe down the water by their house and the the whole canoe flips over and they all get soaking wet and they climb out of the water and, and the captain's like stunned by what's going on. Like he's definitely never seen his kids this like dirty, probably never seen this, his kids like this happy and excited. He like questions Maria about you know, she whether she's doing the right thing, with the why she's questioning so many of the things that he does, and she consistently pushes back on him. And he's just so angry and stern. And it's in this moment that I find like so heartbreaking and touching. And I think it hits on exactly what you're talking about with grief and how music is so tightly connected to that. Is while he's basically trying to fire Maria in this scene, he hears the sound of music, which is not Julie Andrews this time it's his children 
And what's so touching, I literally might cry just describing this because it's such a beautiful scene, <laughs> is that he doesn't even know. Like he he literally doesn't even recognize his own children's voice. Maria has to tell him that's your children. Like he hasn't heard his children like sing in such a long time that she has another person described to him. So I just love that scene. I, I think it's my favorite song in the entire movie is the way the children sing the so- sound of music. It's really beautiful and touching. And plus that scene is just so touching. And Christopher Plummer plays such a great, just like son of a bitch that you just love and you learn to love and you watch him change and, and change throughout the film. It's such a beautiful scene. I really love that scene. Yeah. Christopher Plummer is definitely fantastic. It's not like this, like, Oh, like just, breakout like star like oh my god like that role it but it's very nice it's subtle and what's interesting is like all the behind the scenes of it is that he was kind of a curmudgeon on the set he made fun of the musical wasn't like so into it he thought i think that he was like i'm this i think he was 35 i'm this 35 year old actor and i'm singing in the mountains with this blonde lady like i've no idea who the hell she is because again mary poppins was not out yet so, so he's probably just saying like, like, what the fuck is going on here? Like, why am I doing this? Why, why, why? And it seemed that he did loosen up as the time regressed, and he seemed to really look finally back on it. There's an interview of of Julie Andrews and Christopher Plummer I watched of much, much older. The, you know, it seemed like this was like mid two thousands at the gave this interview, and they look back on it fondly. I think that he looked back on it at that time that was like. Well, it was a moment. It definitely helped my career. Is it my best work? No, but it's definitely a memorable thing. And I'm glad that I was a part of it, you know, and I'm glad that I, you know, it seemed that him and Julie Andrews have a great relationship. And, and just on a little side note, I, I have to bring this up because I think it's fascinating is that the girl who played Liesel, a Charmaine Carr, she was, plays a 16 year old in the movie, but she was 22 at the time. And supposedly, she was kind of flirt- flirting with Christopher Plummer, so he plays her dad in the movie, and he flirted back. No- and they say nothing happened, but it just seemed like they had some sort of mutual attraction. So just a little fascinating. Maybe watch the movie in a little bit of a different lens uh, with some of the stuff. Maybe the first uh, Edelwas is, you know, he's kind of turned his back to the other children, looking at her for like a <laughs> little bit, and there's a little uh, little tension right just there. Saying, I'm just saying, just saying, just saying, it's a little fascinating. Just just saying, it's a little fascinating to uh, to know that. Uh, but yeah, but in terms of the the singing part, and uh, not that we skipped over, we you know we're just talking about it. But I really want to talk about my favorite song of the entire musical, and that oh, is "Do Re Mi." My God, that that song is fantastic. How it's shot is beautiful. Then up in the mountains, I love the guitar part too. It's very simple, and I and you know as someone who plays instruments, and you know it can play some songs or two. Like the way that the song progresses in the way and what it's about and how it talks about the musical notes it's like very simple if you just do like the one two three four five six seven i can't sing but if you do that you know you can create songs and, and music so simply that it makes it it seems just effortless in this and it, it adds a lot of beauty to it so i just i love that song i love the, how they start in the mountains and they you know go down and, and and the song becomes more complex as they're in the city part of salzburg they're running around and having a, a grand and gay old time. But I just love it. And like, you know, who doesn't love just a song lyric? Doe, a deer, a female deer. Ray, a drop of golden sun. Me, a name I call myself. Far, a long, long way to run. So, a needle pulling thread. La, a note to follow. So, tea, a drink with jam and bread. 
and that would bring us back to toe. Like it's so <laughs> stupid and seems so kitty. But when you sing it and when it's done the way they do in the movie, it is like, wow, that is incredible. That's a really great yeah. song. That's so fun, energetic, a great way to build up. It, it adds layers upon layers as each note is introduced. So that's that's my favorite song. I love the way it's choreographed. I love the way it's shot, how it's used. And it, it just seems so important to the movie. So that's my favorite song. That's my little tangent yeah, such on Don't a, Me. Such a sweet song. And I think it does what people always credit Pixar doing is this film combines such a great it creates such great music for children and it's a story that I think children can understand with the love story but at the same time this film is also very much for adults where we have the backdrop of you know World War II and the Nazis going on but then you have the complexity and the simple nature of Do Re Mi where it's such a simple song when you look at it but the lyrics are so quirky and fun and inventive like that's such a a great way to write a song by using kind of like the landscape of music and the notes itself. So cool. I, I don't know nearly enough about music to, to explain why that works so well and how they go through the scales of music so perfectly, but it is such a charming, wonderful song. And, you know, we didn't talk about 16 going on 17, which was always a, a bop. My mom would always sing that growing up. And that's our introduction to Rolf as well, the Nazi son of a bitch who's lingering behind the scenes with all of his letters, that bastard. My my introduction to that song, 16 going on 17, and you're going to piss yourself laughing, was the Vin Diesel epic, what? The Pacifier. You I ever seen that have. I don't remember 16 going on 17 being in it. Yeah, so... All right. Well, the pacifier is a movie about Vin Diesel, who is like this like FBI agent who at the beginning of the movie tries to like rescue and extract a guy. And he and what happens is the guy dies. And so and Vin Diesel gets hurt. And Vin Diesel as like a way to kind of make things right is he goes to take care and and also to help try and find there's like some secret thing he has to find. <laughs> He tries to take care of this guy's like children. So it's like a reverse sound of music. And in the pacifier, the kid, the oldest son, who's like this rough and tumble kind of guy, like dress, dresses like a punk. He dyes his hair blonde and secretly he's been trying out for the school musical, which is the sound of music. And and he sings the 16 going on 17 in the movie. And that's why I know that song. That was <laughs> that was my first introduction to the sound of music was Vin Diesel's The Pacifier. Insane. That's so funny. I've definitely seen that movie, by the way. I 1,000% I remember him having a baby strapped to him while he's, like, trying to steal some mystery spy object or something. Yeah. yeah. I, like, definitely remember seeing that movie. I don't remember the Sound of Music references at all. I did not expect to be talking about a Vin Diesel movie today. I love that. It's, that's so <laughs> funny. In terms of other great music, I mean, I got to say, I think almost every song in this musical is just an absolute banger. I This whole whole movie the whole soundtrack is very like personal to me because it was my mom's favorite film it's still what she says is her favorite film so it has a lot of sentimental you know moments for me and all the songs really just bring me a lot of joy not just even from the movie but just from you know thinking about my mom and thinking about all the fun you know memories that we've had to this movie into the song into the songs so i wanted to i don't know if this is the best time to do it but since i mentioned my mom give a little a little bit of her review on this so i wanted to have her on the actual podcast and have her talk but she's a shy lady and she refused to do it and i couldn't convince her anyway tried to get clips recorded for it couldn't do that so i'm like all right mom i'm gonna ask you three simple questions at least you can do that and she gave me three simple answers so 
my mom, born in 1960. This film comes out in 1965, so she's five years old for context. And I could totally see why a five-year-old loves this movie. I mean, the music is so charming. The the scene with the 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 puppets and the goats, like how could you not love that as a kid? That's like so adorable. It's such amazing puppetry. There's a clear, it's beautiful to look at. Julie Andrews is so charming. Like how would you not want her to be your mom? You know, it makes perfect sense. She probably saw this film maybe in theaters with her family when she was five. So that as a setup makes perfect sense why you would like this movie, why it stayed her, her favorite film of all time. I'll try to break it down here. So I asked my mom, why is Sound of Music your favorite film of all time? And she said, it's the beautiful scenery, and it's a love story about two sassy people that are learning to get along despite their differences. And my mom always wanted a big family growing up, so she was kind of heavily inspired by the love and the joy that you can have from a family and, and kind of coming together and and just being a unit, basically, being a loving unit that fights through the good and the bad and I think you can totally see that in this film. I then asked her, what's your favorite song from the film and why? And we haven't talked about it, but Edelweiss. It's very hard for me to say that for some reason. But she really loves that song because I think it's, it's it really hits on the serious note of the film. You know, the, the sense of peace and freedom. It's also like a love song not only to Austria and the people of Austria, but it's also a love song basically that he's singing to Maria before he even knows he loves her. So I then asked her the final question, what does the sound of music mean to you? And similar to what she was saying, but in general, the sound of music is a film about people who love each other for who they are and for what makes them different. And with those differences, you kind of learn to grow and appreciate each other. And I thought that was very touching and very beautiful. And I completely understand why someone would say this is their favorite movie because you know, there's people that like a lot of dark things, a lot of sad things. I don't think my mom's really much like that, you know? Maybe she likes a murder mystery book or show here and there, but it's really nice watching a film that is just filled with pure joy. While there's still very high stakes, life and death is on the line in The Sound of Music, but it is such a joyous film from beginning to end that it's just filled with love. And how can you not love love? Am I right, Benjamin? Yeah, I don't know how you can't love love, you know. <laughs> so I just want to shout out to my mom yeah, because I, it's her favorite movie of all time. Yeah, and, and I tried very hard to to get your mom on here as well. She didn't want to listen <laughs> to me either, so I don't know when <laughs> when we'd be able to <laughs> get her on. But I, I think it's great when people have such a good love, or not a good love, but a a strong love for a particular movie. I think that's very inspiring in the fact that this movie from 1965 when when she was five years old has stuck as her favorite movie and for several reasons why i i, I think it's a great thing and you know i can't agree more of her points i think that they're very very poignant i love that she broke it down with like the fact that it's about two people who love each other for who they are and for what makes them different i think that's a very insightful way to approach these characters and and what what it's about what they're about what the relationship becomes and how like you know, it's like the opposites attract kind of thing, but they're, it's not really that they're opposites. It's just that one had love and lost it and, and probably was, you know, was a shell of himself, whereas Maria comes in and brings new life to them. And, and that's a beautiful thing. So thank you, John's mom, for contributing to the podcast. You're now a, what, a, a worthy <laughs> podcast <Absolutely>. member. <laughs> a, a worthy I, I think you're a exactly worthen. right, though, with that description. And I think 
the difference between the Baroness and Maria is very apparent. You know, Baroness is very much almost like an arm candy to the captain. She's beautiful. She's nice. She's not really going to cause harm. She's definitely going to make life probably, you know, pretty equal. And and she seems like a, a fairly nice woman. But she's not completing the captain in a way where Maria is pushing back at him probably more than anyone ever has. Maybe his previous wife who passed pushed at, at him in that way and and that's what really made them as a complete unit and i think you kind of have to be that in a way to have a su- successful relationship is to kind of like fill in the gaps with each other right you you may you know go too far in the opposite direction where the yin and yang is so drastic that you can't kind of mesh into it but i think you need to have those differences and you need to push each other in a way that kind of makes each other stronger. And I think this is a great demonstration of that kind of love. And it's really interesting with this film because it's very much a musical that has very little dialogue almost in between the scenes. Like, yes, there are are full-on scenes with dialogue with Maria and the captain, but the music is very much used as our gateway to our characters' feelings and how our characters are progressing forward. So I think a lot of people have the criticism, and I I think I would agree with some of the criticism that the captain and and Maria fall in love very quickly. And over a three-hour movie... Yes, you have to kind of like fill in some gaps, especially where we go in the third act. Like you kind of have to speed up the process a little bit. This can't be like a four hour long film. But I think it does enough with the music and especially with their song together, Something Good, which is such a nod throwback to classic Hollywood and classic musicals. And it develops their relationship in a a sweet way, even though it's kind of like crazy to hear the captain saying like, I fell in love with you when you sat on a pine cone. Like, that's pretty ridiculous and and kind of hard to believe, especially because that was like the first dinner they had with each other. But, you know, when you look at it literally, it's like he didn't actually fall in love with. It was almost like that moment kind of broke him in a way. It broke him in a way that's good, that he like fully could be like, all right, I actually like this person. She didn't scream and yell at the kids when she sat on the pine cone. She understood why the kids were doing it instead of just punishing the kids for what they did. So I think that, again, is another layer layer of subtlety that I think when you look at it surface level, it doesn't seem that subtle. It doesn't seem like these two are just saying saying things that happened in the film that are then relating to their love. It's not just that. I think it goes deeper than that. And I think it does always come back to the kids and it comes back to the way Maria is treating his children and how impressed he is by that and how he it warms his heart and I think it breaks and pulls down his shield and so to really connect with her. So I really love their relationship together. I do probably agree with some criticism where I think it could be a little more in depth, but at that point you have to ask the question, if you want more of them to kind of connect and have more screen time or more of like dialogue to kind of show their love progressing. Maybe you see a couple dates, like you're going to have to start cutting away at songs or certain moments, you know, I don't know. How do you feel about like the overall runtime and how do you feel about like Maria and the captain's love and the criticism that people have where they say it's underdeveloped? Well, I think the runtime is it's so weird because, yeah, you see three hours. You know, I remember the first time that I watched this movie as a whole and I was like, wow, this is a long movie when I started it. But the movie, it captures you right away. It really brings you along nicely. I think it's paced pretty well. So the runtime doesn't really impact me 
very much. I was saying those things about the nuns because I was thinking like, oh, well, for a three hour runtime, what could you cut? What, you know, what, what isn't really extremely necessary to the plot? And like, that's, that was one thing that I pointed out, but otherwise I really know issues with the plot in terms of their love. This is one of those things that I was saying in terms of like the criticism of the movies that if you just are okay with that, that this is basic, that this is a, you know, it's a simple story and that this movie is more about the music and the musical and then, you know, and, and bringing it to life in movie form, I think it's okay to, you know, to suspend some of that, to suspend that belief, that reality. I mean, we did that West Side Story, you know, even thinking back to like Wings, like that simple, you know, love triangle relationship we weren't a fan of, but it still worked for the story, you know? So for me, for this, it's, it's fine. It works because it drives the story. It doesn't drag you down with, with it, it feels complete. Like with my fair lady, some of the love in that was so like, we were like, what the hell? Like, how did this come about? This really makes no sense compared to what they were saying before. There's really no like issues with like what they had said before, what, how they represented themselves, like how they interact with each other. It, it feels natural when it gets to that point. And it's done. I also in a very beautiful way, with that the song something good when in the gazebo they have such a beautiful kiss i think the kiss that they have is like some of the one of the best movie kisses i've ever seen it feels so you know natural and strong and also i love the lighting in the scenes they did a really good job with like soft lighting so this is some of the old hollywood tricks that i noticed right away in this movie is that they use really soft lighting in the romantic parts and the parts that like wanted to bring you in they do that when they're dancing with each other and they have that look and they're after they realize like, wow, like this dance makes me love you. It's the same thing in West Side Story. They dance with each other and like, wow, I really like you. You're now yeah. the person who I'm willing to die over yeah, within but- like a night. So it, I don't know. It's just one of those things in musicals that you kind of have to either fully embrace or it's just so, it's just not done in a way that you're just like, well, this just takes me out of it and I, and I can't. Yeah. And I, I agree with you. The West Side Story, I think I, I had a big problem with that because it is immediately like meet and then they fall in love. But this film, it's like you can see the attraction. You can see the way that they kind of like fight and bicker in a way that is helping each other. And you can see that love and you can see that love slowly blossoming that when we get to that point and we get to the dancing and singing, it does feel more earned. It does feel like we've kind of earned to get to that point. You know, we have the moment of Maria returning to the the... I'm blanking on the word for where the nuns live, returning to the church, the abbey. Thank oh, you. Abbey. Returning to the abbey. And yeah. we get Mother Abbess singing Climb Every Mountain, and that kind of inspires her to really believe in herself, to, to deep, dive deep into her love for the captain. And even if it means that you're not a nun, you have to listen to yourself and you listen to your heart. And that's like halfway through the film. That is a very important moment for Maria. And it's what convinces her to not hold her guard down in a way where she was holding up a guard to like not fully fall for him and to really just care for the children. And then that guard is kind of fully let down after she meets with mother Abbess again. So I do think there's a lot of, a lot going on here. And I think when you don't pay attention to song lyrics, when you don't really listen to what they're singing about and what the songs are actually about, and you're just, you know, oh, this is a catchy song. Oh, Mother Abbas hit that really beautiful high note. Like, that's that's stunning. But if you really listen to some of the lyricism, you'll understand where the characters are and how they're progressing throughout the film. So without getting too pretentious, 
I think there's a lot to love here. And I think the music really progresses us through the story. And that's where for some musicals that kind of has been a frustrating thing for me. But with this, it, it does such a good well with its songwriting that it just completely pushes you through the story. Like you could you could probably cut out most of the dialogue scenes and still probably have a pretty good understanding of what's actually happening. And, and this is kind of a side note, but I recently watched a little documentary on, I think, how the films were made on Netflix, all about The Nightmare Before Christmas. And that film was basically made and was starting to be made without even a script. They had all the songs completed by Danny Elfman but the songs were so thorough and there was no script made when he wrote them that literally every song kind of like takes you throughout the story. Like you don't even need scenes in between them. They're that concise that they are telling us our story, introducing us our, into our characters, our setting. And I think that's exactly what The Sound of Music does in a way that is is really incredible that each song and the way they then reprise the song as well is still just as powerful, if not more powerful, that they're reprising it. And I know that's a common trend in musicals. You know, you have your your main theme song, you have some of the side songs, then you reprise them and maybe a different number, maybe acoustically, maybe you're adding more of an orchestra to the reprise. But I don't think many musicals hit on the reprise like we do in this, you know, and it comes down to the big festival at the very end. And when we kind of get tied down into the war upcoming and the Nazis coming in and with the reprises that we hear at the festival and the Von Trapp family coming together, it becomes really, really powerful. So I think we can skip to the festival and talk a little bit about how do you feel about the reprising of some of the songs and overall, how do you feel about that introduction to the war and the Nazis? Yeah, so that's like the big, it's the last like 30 minutes of this movie takes a real dramatic turn and twist. And this is where you lose some of what you had been building in the movie. And it's not a bad thing because I think it's a really strong like filmic part and, and done really well by Robert Wise. But it just the way that it fits in with the narrative feels like a little more smashed together than maybe it needs to be. I think there could have been some more... Nazi stuff happening, you know, add a little more drama to it because it, it gets pretty abrupt. Like it's just like, bam, the Nazis took over. And just a side note on that, you know, they the filmmakers, you know, they went to the, I don't, know, I don't know if it was the mayor, whoever was, you know, in charge of Salzburg, and they're just like, so we're gonna decorate the buildings and put the Nazi symbols up. And the Salzburg people were like, no, we we really don't want that. Like we you know, we, we weren't on their side, like X, Y, Z. And then they were like, well, then we just use the real news footage of you guys and all your Nazi stuff all around here. So it's kind of like <laughs> your choice, which is a really, it's a really great way to kind of get your way and to make it look right. You know, I hate to use that for talking about the Nazis, but it's pretty funny. They're like, well, we could just use the real stuff if you don't want us to decorate the town up and make the movie how we want to make it. Producer lingo there, like a subtle threat, but also like it's your choice. I'm just saying. Yeah, you know, do yeah, you do this. This happens. We do that. That happens. It's a mafia type shit right there. Yeah. So the so when they bring in the the Nazis and that whole part of the story, it's. It's dramatic. It's this huge tonal shift. And what was like this nice flowery musical becomes this drama, this like really not like action, but has that like tense feeling to it that it's so like you're gripping on the edge of your seat. You're like, are they going to get out? Are they going to be able to do this? And 
another side note in reality, they didn't climb into the mountains at the end. Apparently, they just hopped on a train to Italy because if they had climbed over the mountains, they actually would have ended up in Germany and like where Hitler was like vacationing <laughs> is where they would have ended up. They actually climbed over the mountains. So that's where I can understand some people's criticism of the movie being like, well, they wouldn't have been able to get out just by walking out of Switzerland and blah, 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 or Austria. Blah, blah, but blah, what, blah. Makes, what makes Which, more sense again, for the story, to, though, right? For the songs that you've written, Climb Every Mountain, the way she's introduced us to the film, the, surrounding us with the sound of music in the hills, like what makes more sense for the story? It does. It right. makes more sense. It it. Yeah, it makes completely more sense. So it's one of those things where I'm like, that's okay, because the ending is so strong and be you know that when we they're pushing the car out, they're like you know trying to be quiet. They get caught by the Nazis. You know, Georg you know thinks quickly on his feet. He's like, well, we are just going to the festival. Then the festival, it's it's shot beautifully well. It's like some of the lighting is, I the lighting is like really good in that scene. The lighting wasn't strong in some of the interiors. But I think that's because they were in a studio space. But regardless, this the lighting is really great. The the tension's there. They sing "So Long Farewell," which is you know the way for them to get out of the whole like festival. Which again is a really great plot device that we're literally going to say "So Long Farewell," and you're going to think that we're going to return, but we're really not. We fled immediately. And then when they go on their you know on the chase and they're again chase through the abbey and they hide it, it's really tense and you're. You kind of think like, are they actually going to make it out of this? Like, how like how the hell are they going to get? Was it nine people out of, you know, out of harm's way like that easily? And and they do it, and it it's, it pays off at the end. You feel great. You kind of like, yeah, mini battle against the Nazis. Like we showed them, you know, von Trapp family. <laughs> so I really like the ending. I really like the whole like last act of the movie because it it takes that tonal shift. It it's so tense and it the drama is really heightened in that moment. No, you're absolutely right. And I think it does. It gets taken almost into a thriller direction with how tense the scene is. And, you know, you have the introduction of the Nazis. And it's a really incredible screenwriting here because it's like, oh, we have to start your car for you. You know, this is before the festival scene, but you get the intimidation factor of the Nazis and you get the intimidation that they're going to they're never going to leave. You know, they may say that you have some sort of like leeway. Maybe you only have to serve some sort some amount of time as a captain, but, you know, you can't trust them. And obviously that's apparent with our knowledge and history, but I think it's very interesting the way they depict the Nazis, and it's not, they're not insane. There's a subtlety to it. Again, like I've been saying, this film is a lot more subtle than I think people are saying, is that the film could have been outrageous. It could have been, like, screaming Nazis, and it could have been so, like, ridiculous and overhyped, but the film is then centered around our family and around the music again and how the music changes people. I mean, the way that he sings to the crowd as almost like his last goodbye, even though he knows he's trying to escape, he's selling it so perfectly. It's like an actor acting within a scene, also acting inside the scene, right? Like he's trying to convince the crowd, the Nazis in the crowd, that this truly is his goodbye to Austria and his people. And that's so touching. It's such an interesting scene because there's so much going on in the background, yet it's so simple. It's just like our 
our family up on stage singing and doing what they've done throughout the film, but there's so much more stakes to it. We know what this means. We know that their performance and how much the Austrian people are listening and loving them is important to the way the Nazis are seeing them. And we know that when they leave, you know, are they actually leaving? Are they trying to escape? Are they actually telling the truth and staying there? So there's so much stakes at play here. And you just, I do agree with you that it is fast and we, this last kind of third act is definitely where some of the pacing kind of gets smushed and, and gets a little messy, but I think it's still earned in terms of the way they set it up in the background and the way it, it then later on pays off our characters. So, of course, if you know the story, the Von Trapp family escapes. They go back to the abbey to kind of hide there in the cemetery, the crypt, the creepy crypt, which is like so drastically different than the beautiful, bright visuals of the mountains, the greenery, the beautiful white, blue skies. It's so drastically different. We're like almost taken into black and white with like how ugly and muggy the crypt is. And then we have Rolf taking the true villainous turn like we've introduced him he's had his like singing dancing song and we think that maybe they'll have a side plot of loving each other but it is a twist it's it's very much like he's gone so far down the path he probably thinks this is life and death for him as well to get this family he thinks he may be punished you know this is all stuff that i'm reading into the film but it's enough to to get from the film, right there. The film is telling us enough about Rolf, his character and the way he kind of like sees the world and he knows bad things are coming, but he really loves the Von Trapp daughter. So it's really interesting to kind of bring Rolf back into this kind of make him the villain, have a kind of standoff that he has with the captain. I, th I really enjoyed it because it's like very tense and almost like the film becomes an entirely different film. It comes like an Hitchcockian thriller. So how did you feel about like our end kind of, I'll call it a chase scene, even though it's really not about the chase, it's more about the confrontation, but how do you feel about our kind of end and our conclusion here? Oh, I loved it. And like I was saying before, the tension is is right there. It's so thick, you can cut right through it. It It's a great ending. And, and I, I agree that it feels earned that to have this shift, to have, you know, this, this storyline, it's very unique to be this musical. It's very fun and, and happy and you know that and whimsical and like full of life and, and look at what music can do and then hey look there's this creepy and darkness happening on the edge of our world and our life and now it's fully consumed our society in our town and how do we battle that I mean they run away with it but they show that defiance they show that their role with stopping the Nazis was to get away from it not to be a part of it not to you know you know give into it and be like, oh, well, you know, we got taken over and yeah, I'm already a naval, you know, captain. I might as well just be another naval captain. Like, no, he had values. He, he had a firm belief that I'm not going to join the Nazis that, you know, when he sings, you know, Edelwas, that Austria is his home, that, that he still believes in his country and his people. And, you know, even though he has a phys he physically goes away, it's still all there for him. And yeah, I, it's a very great ending to a movie. And, you know, I think like this movie, we there's so much nuance and you know songs that I feel like we didn't really dive deep into. That I feel like we could spend like another you know hour and a half you know talking about like song farewell is great. You know, we talk about you know my favorite things we didn't even touch on the lonely goat herd, <laughs> which is really the reason why this movie won best picture. I mean, it's the only movie 
out of the best pictures that I can think of the top of my head that has a puppet <laughs> sequence that is unreal. Like, how do they do that? First off, how it, it is a really that? amazing scene, and I I do love the sequence. But I got to be honest, if there's any musical number to cut out of this movie, it's definitely this. It's don't definitely it. this. Don't say it. It doesn't Please. add anything to the story. No. All it does is really show the captain that his, his kids are listening and they're being good kids. But I think we already got that at that point. So, But <laughs> but maybe the the person who's high on the hill, who is the lonely goat herder, was the <laughs> captain on his high hill. And he's all lonely. And you know, loud was the voice of the lonely goat herd. Lord Alay, Lord Alay, Lord A he who. I mean, like, John, we're like, how do you not think that this is crucial to the story? That's what's so great about this movie is that you can have the ridiculousness of that, the do re mi, where the lyrics is just like doesn't make any sense. But then you have like the beautiful touching lyricism of, you know, the sound of music or 16 going on 17 and climb every mountain. Like that's what's make this makes this film so special is the way it's able to do both. It can have its cake and eat it too. You know, I, I absolutely love that. And it's such a great way to end the movie with them, you know, saying climb every mountain as they kind of climb up the hills and we see the beautiful land and surrounding beautiful nature that they're surrounded by. And I mean, we've talked a lot about the scenery and the beautiful hills and obviously it's in the lyricism, but like, God damn, it is so beautiful to see film a film that is just shot on location in a way that really honors the location. Like there's so many moments in this movie, even when you're at the captain's house and and you know, we're outside in their beautiful manicured lawn, like we see the beautiful hills and the snow caps. You know, it's it's absolutely beautiful and it's so amazing that they shot on location. And I think that's kind of what separates Weiss's films from the others, you know. I, we liked an American in Paris, but there's such an artificial nature of being locked on a set, you know, and that's why you have a performer who goes crazy out there and, and dances across the set. But there's something so grounded about this film because we're seeing the real scenery. We're seeing beautiful backdrops that are so beautiful that like it's hard to believe that they're real sometimes. Yeah, I mean, like, the direct comparison for me is really just My Fair Lady yeah. from the year before. I mean, My Fair Lady, all on a soundstage. And part of Sound of Music was done in Hollywood on a soundstage, but then they did do all those exteriors in Austria that they, they really did go to this city and captured its beauty. And that's the extra mile that it went that is great that we get to see in musicals. You know, with uh, with West Side Story, they were really in New York, you know, in those exteriors. They really got into the nitty grittiness of it. And American in Paris, yeah, it wasn't on a soundstage or it wasn't on location, but they still did a great job of capturing it. There's a lot of great choreography in that musical that helps it. Whereas like My Fair Lady, it's so stunted. It doesn't really do much. It's just like, hey, everyone loves My Fair Lady. So, of course, like this musical is going to pay off. Whereas The Sound of Music, it was it was the it won for best musical at the Tonys, but it wasn't like as popular as my fair lady was. So the way that the fact that this pulls off and it becomes even more popular is really just says to like how well the movie and the musical was captured on film. And yeah, and the cinematography is beautiful. I, apparently they were also dealing with like a lot of rain in it, but you have to have a lot of heavy rain to be able to see it on film anyway. So they were able to work around it and it captures a beautiful countryside. So there's, uh, yeah, the, it's a beautiful looking movie. Has uh, a beautiful message to it. Is there really anything that we have not hit on that that we should hit on? Hey, hey, you want to sing, John? I love when we <laughs> sing on the on these musical no, episodes. You tell me, I'm, re I'm ready to sing. There's way too many high notes in this in musical to sing. 
<laughs> no, I'll take no, the high Neither notes. of us can take the high notes. I do oh. love in, in the Sound of Music, not the Julie Andrews performance, which is amazing, incredible. You know, we've praised her so much, but the Sound of Music with the children and the captain singing, I love when they hit the high notes, like the angel, like, oh, like the way it like falls down, you know, like I oh. love that. Yeah. There's something like so appetizing about that. You know, it's delicious. I love it. I think we really hit on as much as we could. You know, we could have broken this down song by song, but, you know, I'm not a musical mastermind. I know a lot more about film than I do about music. So I think we hit on a lot. I mean, I think we really diagnosed and and took apart the whole story and and really dug deep into a film that I think gets, I think it's still underappreciated in a way that I don't think a lot of the musicals are. Like, the, I think people still look at My Fair Lady and just praise it for... Audrey Hepburn and and all the costumes, but I don't just don't think really people remember the film for what it is, and I just wish more people did that with The Sound of Music. And you know, there's a lot more musicals out there that but, people probably don't praise, but I just love The Sound of Music. Yeah, there's more choreography and great filmmaking in just So Long Farewell with Gretel <laughs> scooching her little baby butt up the stairs than anything My Fair Lady does. It's it's unbelievable how drastic the indifference those movies are with each other. And the fact they came out in back-to-back years and won back-to-back years really shows how great filmmaking can be. And, you know, we were pulling our hairs out with My Fair Lady, but I think we got our, we definitely got our cake with yeah, the sound of music. you're absolutely right. And, you know, My Fair Lady just released a 4K disc. And I want to end this by saying, come on, sound of music. Where's our 4K beautiful restoration? Oh, come on. We need that. We need it. It's on Disney I Plus. Disney John. Plus. I want physical media. Well, I can't really <laughs> help you there, John. Anyways, let's get into the 38th Academy Awards. And now, for the first time in color, the 38th Academy How do you do, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to the agony and the ecstasy. <laughs> Santa Monica version. Now, this is the 38th annual edition of Roar the Grease Paint Smell of the Crowd. This is a great night for the Hollywood stars. Tonight, we clean slate, set aside our petty differences, forget old feuds, and start new ones. <laughs> now, I'm sure we're going to have a great show this evening. Before we went on the air, Rex Harrison put on his robes and blessed the stage. <laughs> We have a very distinguished audience here tonight, as befits this great occasion. Sitting out there are the stars of today and the senators of tomorrow. <laughs> but I'm delighted to be back here again for my 12th year of penance. For the next two hours, you'll see me helping to hand out the Oscars and smiling. I've been preparing for it all week, sleeping on a bed of nails. <laughs> no, I never had a chance this year. I can't drink like Lee Marvin. I can't grunt like Rod Steiger. I can't enunciate like Olivier. And when it comes to Burton, I'm really in trouble. Gathered <laughs> here tonight, are some of the greatest performers in the world, the greatest producers, the greatest director, and the greatest writers. And you're going to see some of the greatest acting when they congratulate each other. 
But isn't it exciting? All over America, people are saying to each other, I wonder who will win. And all over Beverly Hills, psychiatrists are dusting off their couches and saying, I wonder who will lose. The 30th Academy Awards were held on April 18, 1966 at the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium in Santa Monica, California. And the event was once again hosted by Bob Hope. This year's ceremony was actually broadcasted to the ABC network, and not only was it broadcasted to ABC for the first time, it was also shown in color for the first time. The two most nominated films this year were The Sound of Music and Dr. Zhivago, each with 10 nominations. Both of these films are in the top 10 inflation-adjusted commercially successful films ever made, and both would appear 33 years later on the American Film Institute list of the greatest American films of the 20th century. The Gene Herschelt Humanitarian Award went to Edmund L. DePatty. DePatty succeeded Gene Herschelt as president of the Motion Picture Relief Fund in 1955, and he died four months after receiving the Humanitarian Award in this year. The Irving G. Thalberg Memorial Award went to William Wyler. William Wyler is a three-time Best Director winner for Mrs. Miniver, The Best Years of Our Lives, and Ben-Hur. So I think it's the first time that any of our Best Director winners from past movies has won that award, if I remember that correctly. Yeah, that, that um, I can think of as well. It's, it's never really directors or actors, but more producers or visionaries in yeah. the industry. Yeah, maybe John Ford got it, you know, I could a see bit that, ago, yeah. but I, yeah. And an honorary award went to Bob Hope for unique and distinguished services to our industry and the Academy. So this is the fifth and final honorary award that Bob Hope received. And he received a special award in 1944 and 1940. In 1952, he received his first honorary award. In 1959, he received the Gene Herschel Humanitarian Award. And he capped it all off with his second honorary award at the 30th Academy Award. So five Oscars to Bob Hope. Again, like honorary awards are separate from the Oscars. They rarely do it anymore. Really make a big deal of it. And I feel like it like that should be something that we should like care more about. Like, don't don't you want to see that more, John? Absolutely. I mean, I think they should really honor people that we constantly yell at them for not honoring, you know, people that are in motion capture suits, people that, you know, do all this work that we never really get to see. And we never really get to honor them, especially when it comes to special effects these days, where these days where so much of the films that we're watching are all digitally enhanced or changed and all these different backdrops, like, you know, and there's so many artists that I don't think are honored. And I think this is a perfect way to honor them from the Academy. Best special effects went to John Steers for Thunderball. This is Steers' first of two Academy Awards, and he would go on to win Best Visual Effects in 1977 for none other than Star Wars A New Hope. Steers created James Bond's lethal Aston Martin DB5, Luke Skywalker's Landspeeder, the Jedi Knight's lightsabers, and the endearing robots R2-D2 and C-3PO, as well as a host of other famous movie gadgets and special effects. So talk about someone who deserves all the awards for making some of the most iconic tech gadgets and just overall amazing special effects. Just what a what an, an amazing honor. I mean, some of our favorite you know, franchises and films just completely honored by John Steers. Yeah, you know, about his work, about his contributions to film, we wouldn't have many of our favorite things in any movies that we've grown accustomed to and, and inspired by. 
Moving on to best film editing, that one went to William H. Reynolds for The Sound of Music. This is Reynolds' first of two Academy Awards. He would go on to win for The Sting, the 1973 Best Picture winner. Reynolds was also the editor for The Godfather, the 1972 Best Picture winner. In 2012, the Motion Picture Editors Guild published a list of the best edited films of all time. Two films edited by Reynolds appeared on that list. The Godfather was ranked sixth. And The Sound of Music was ranked 64th. So something we didn't really talk about was the film editing in The Sound of Music. And I'm not going to lie. I don't think it was anything like it's the 64th best edited <laughs> film ever made. It's interesting. I mean, we've talked about editing before and how it's so imperative with musicals. And I think that's that goes here as well, I, how much it is to edit it. I mean, I just think of the opening introduction as well and and how hard that was probably to edit and choosing the clouds first or choosing like certain shots over each other and obviously you have all the musical sequences and matching the actors to the movements and matching their lips with the certain songs like there's a lot that goes into editing especially when you add music into it and then not only that when you add it to on-scene locations where the environment can change you know I think there's a lot here to praise in terms of film editing, but it's just not the film editing you see directly. It's not the thing you notice where you're like, whoa, those are a bunch of cool visual edits and quick cuts, and, you know, which is what we always jump to when we think of best film editing. But I think it does an amazing job of telling the story. And I think it does a great job of like depicting our children in a weird way in this film. There's a lot of children. You're not going to ever know their names by heart by just looking at them. But I think it does a good job of visually editing and showing each of these children throughout the movie that you get a good depiction of who each of them are. Best costume design color went to Phyllis Dalton for Dr. Javago. This is Dalton's first of two Academy Award wins, and she would go on to win at the 62nd Academy Awards for Kenneth Branagh's Henry V. Dalton is also well known for her work on Lawrence of Arabia, Oliver, and The Princess Bride. Best costume design black and white went to Julie Harris for Darling. This is Harris's only Academy Award win and nomination. Her work included the first two Beatles feature films, A Hard Day's Night and Help. She also worked on Casino Royale and Live and Let Die. Best Cinematography Color went to Freddie Young for Dr. Zhivago. At times, Freddie Young was credited as F.A. Young, and this would be Young's second of three Oscar wins in the Best Cinematography category, and he previously won for Lawrence of Arabia and would go on to win for Ryan's Daughter in 1970. All three of these films are David Lean's films. So the interesting thing in this category is that Dr. Zhivago beats out The Sound of Music and both had 10 nominations, both up to this point had one win each. So it's interesting that The Sound of Music, which we praise so much for its cinematography and the way it looked, but Dr. Zhivago comes out on top and it, that might be okay with me. I don't know, John, you... Any 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 thoughts to defend the sound well, of music? Since I haven't seen all of Doctor Zhivago, as I was saying, I've only seen like a third of it, probably. I mean, the sound of music is incredible. I mean, the opening cinematography, the helicopter shots, the beautiful use of natural scenery. There's not a lot of camera movements, anything like two out there, right? It's mainly just kind of showing what we need to see, and I think we we kind of are less flirting with the camera and we're more flirting with our actors and actresses and the way they dance. And the movie's really about music and singing and less about 
cinematography and kind of presenting it in a dazzling way. I think it relies more on the actual landscape and the characters to kind of present that drama. So judging from what I've seen from like an hour into Dr. Zhivago, it seemed to honor its setting, this cold kind of Russian wintry setting, right? But it was doing some very interesting camera work, a lot of use with mirrors, you know, a lot of cool different things that I was already seeing. But again, I didn't finish it, so I can't really say you probably love Dr. Zhivago. In fact, I know you love Dr. Zhivago. So so tell me a little bit about that cinematography. I love it. So it's just, it's beautiful. It it adds so much depth to the story. I love, I mean, they're both wide, you know, screen format films, but the way that David Lean literally just like paints a picture within every frame of Dr. Zhivago is, is why it's so beautiful. I mean, the icy landscape, it's, it creates beauty in like what would, it's like a barren like wasteland at times where it's like sound of music. It's like, Oh, you know, we, ha- and this isn't a criticism of it, but it's like, we have Austria, we have Salzburg, we have all these mountains that we can look at. It's so beautiful and picturesque where the beauty in Dr. Zhivago is more it, it from like how he paints the pic, the picture of it, how he creates the characters, how the actors and actresses interact with each other within those frames. It's, it's really beautiful that movie it's it's like low-key in many ways but i yeah i really love dr Zhivago. best cinematography black and white went to ernest laszlo for ship of fools this is laszlo's only career win out of eight total nominations all of his academy nominations came later in his career after 1960 and he got his start as a camera operator for wings for 1927 the first best picture winner so to think about that john like he got his start as just an camera operator for Wings. And not, it wasn't until 65 that he was winning and then getting even more nominations later in his career. So it's, I don't know like <laughs> how that happens. I don't know if he just wasn't doing enough like popular films, but it definitely didn't seem to be the case. But yeah, like this guy worked on Wings and now is getting his Oscar 30 Yeah, if you just later. squint while you're watching Wings, you can see him hanging on a plane as it goes flying in the air, uh... <laughs> holding onto a camera. <laughs> Best Art Direction Color went to Dr. Zhivago. Art Direction by John Box, Terrence Marsh, Set Direction by Dario Simone. This is Box's second of four Academy Awards, Marsh's first of two Academy Awards, and Simone's second and final Academy Award. Box and Simone previously won for Lawrence of Arabia in 1962. And the final three films Marsh was credited with were The Shawshank Redemption, The Green Mile, and Rush Hour 2. Yeah, you know, Rush Hour 2 was art directed by an <laughs> Well, Award you say one. that and you laugh, but those movies have, like, amazing art direction because they're constantly changing locations. They have to destroy the locations. They have to, like, go to different locations in the world. Like, <laughs> there's a lot there. And, I mean, Shawshank Redemption, I still think, is one of my favorite films of all time amazing art direction like such incredible art direction of that prison decorating and the everything about that movie in terms of art direction is magnificent and the green mile i mean everyone talks about those two movies as being like the iconic prison movies and you need good art direction to pick that prison best art direction black and white went to ship of fools art direction by robert clatworthy and set decoration by joseph by joseph kish this is Clatworthy's only Academy Award. He was nominated a total of five times, including Psycho. And it's just Kish's only Academy Award win. And I just thought that was a brilliant idea, John. You ready for this? We do a series of worthy episodes on Robert Clatworthy's work. 
Why? Because the worthy part and clap worthy, <laughs> we're worthy. I, <laughs> Duh. I was just checking to see if you had further explanation. <laughs> that's no, it. it's that's literally it. just for that. <laughs> that's it. And it's only five episodes. <laughs> Best sound went to The Sound of Music from James Kokorin and Fred Hines. This is Kokorin's first and only Academy Award, but Hines' fifth and final Academy Award, as he previously won for The West Side Story, The Alamo, South Pacific, and Oklahoma. Hines' five awards in this category is tied for the most with Thomas T. Moulton and Douglas Shearer. Best sound effects went to The Great Race to Treg Brown. This is Brown's only win, and he is more well-known for his work on Looney Tunes. Best scoring of music adaptation or treatment went to The Sound of Music from Erwin Kostel. This is Kostel's second and final Academy Award, and he previously won in the same category for his work on West Side Story. Yeah, so what, you know, what is there more to say about what, for the sound, I almost said West Side Story, for the Sound of Music, Rodgers and Hammerstein, original musical adapted for the screen. You know, the music itself is, you know, pretty brilliant. It's like the, probably the biggest, you know, thing of this movie that, you know, the, the shining, the biggest shining star of this movie is this, this is a score. Yeah, you're absolutely music. right. The, the umbrellas of sheer, I cannot pronounce it, but. The umbrellas of Sherbar, 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 I cannot pronounce it, but the people, it's a nomination for best scoring of music. (laughs) I cannot pronounce it. It's a French word, but I've seen the movie. It's stunning. It's like an an amazing, amazing, visually stunning musical. And it is, it is an amazing film and just technically and visually. So I understand why that's there. I mean, I think if you were to see that movie, I think it would like blow your mind in terms of visuals alone. I think we see it a couple more times in this year's Oscars. But yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. What else is there to say? I mean, it won best sound and best scoring of picture. So I don't hear any single flaws when it comes to the sound recording. I think it's so crisp and clear. I I don't even see any like lip syncing issues or anything. Like it is so on point throughout this entire movie. And I know there were some issues here and there with some of the crew members of trying to nail that down, but I think it worked perfectly. And I think it worked perfectly. You can even see it with Christopher Plummer's performance where he was lip sync over and you don't see any like sort or any sort of crumb that that actually happened it feels very natural like it came from him and you know we gushed over the music it's fantastic so one thing i wanted to point out before we move on to best music score substantially original is the movie you were trying to pronounce and <laughs> the umbrellas of i don't even know shaborg i don't know either but it's the same thing that happened with mary poppins the year before it's nominated in both <laughs> categories why is there a movie nominated in original score and adapted (laughs) score there is literally no evidence reason why the academy you you gotta watch that movie sometime though ben it is it is a trip like visually it is more like stunning than probably like color wise it's really all about the color in that movie uses crazy primary colors that's like so in your face la la land was definitely heavily inspired by that movie that's all i'll say i just won't know who wrote the music was it adapted <laughs> was it original just like who? we'll never know moving on to best music score substantially original went to marie jarre for dr Zhivago. this is Jarre's second academy award after previously winning for his score for lawrence of arabia and he went on to win for a passage to india which was david lean's final film while working on the soundtrack for dr Zhivago, marie jarre was asked by director david lean to come up with a theme for the character of Lara, played by Julie Christie. 
Initially, Lean had desired to use a well-known Russian song, but could not locate the rights to it and delegated responsibility to Jure. After several unsuccessful attempts at writing it, Lean suggested to Jure that he go to the mountains with his girlfriend and write a piece of music for her. Jure says that the re- resultant piece was Laura's theme and Lean liked it well enough to use it in numerous tracks for the film. In editing Dr. Zhivago, Lean and producer Carlo Ponti reduced or outright deleted many of the themes composed by Jure, which Jure was angry about because he felt that an over-reliance on Laura's theme would ruin the soundtrack. Lara's theme is great. It's a beautiful movement that they do use constantly throughout the movie. And, you know, I, he did have Lawrence of Arabia with Jari's piece with the, you know, some of the most iconic, you know, scoring in that movie. Like it, it's re- repeated throughout. That's kind of like Lean's thing. I liked Lara's theme. It, it And the, the ode to Russian culture within this score is beautiful. So yeah, I'm, I'm okay. I'm very happy that this movie won best music score as well. Best short subject cartoon went to The Dot and the Line. Best short subject live action went to The Chicken to Claude Barry. Best documentary short subject went to To Be Alive. Best documentary feature went to The Eleanor Roosevelt Story. Best film song went to The Shadow of Your Smile from The Sandpiper. Music by Johnny Mandel and lyrics by Paul Francis Webster. The shadow of your smile When you are gone Will color all my dreams And light the dark This is Mandel's only Oscar win and Webster's third and final Academy Award win after previously winning for The Secret Love from Calamity Jane and Love is a Many Splendored Thing. Best Foreign Language Film went to The Shop on Main Street to Czechoslovakia. Best Screenplay Based on Material from Another Medium went to Dr. Zhivago by Boris Pasternak. This is Bolt's first of two Academy Award wins, and he would win the next year at the 39th Academy Award for the 1966 Best Picture winner, A Man for All Seasons. Bolt was also the screenwriter for 1962's Lawrence of Arabia. Best story and screenplay written directly for the screen went to Darling to Frederick Raphael. As Raphael's only Academy Award win, he was nominated a second time for Two for the Road in 1967, One of his last films he ever wrote was Eyes Wide Shut, which was Stanley Kubrick's final film for 1999. Best Supporting Actress went to Shelley Winters for A Patch of Blue as Rose Ann Darcy. This is Winters' second and final Academy Award, and she previously won for Best Supporting Actress for The Diary of Anne Frank. And Winters became the first actress to win multiple Oscars in the Best Supporting Actress category. She is tied with Diane Weist as the only two to win multiple times in the same category. Best Supporting Actor went to Martin Balsam for A Thousand Clowns as Arnold Burns. As Balsam's only Academy Award win and nomination, his other notable works include playing Juror Number 1 in 12 Angry Men, Detective Milton Arbogast in Psycho, and O.J. Berman in Breakfast at Tiffany's. A Thousand Clowns tells the story of an eccentric comedy writer who is forced to conform to society to retain legal custody of his nephew. 
Best Actress went to Julie Christie for Darling as Diana Scott. This is Christie's first and only Academy Award, and she has been nominated a total of four times, including Darling, Macab and Mrs. Miller, Afterglow, and Away From Her. Christie also starred in Dr. Zhivago in 1965. Her starring in both Dr. Zhivago and Darling led to Life magazine, dubbing 1965 as the year of Julie Christie. So yeah, I want to touch on Julie Christie first and just the movie Darling really briefly. Julie Christie, phenomenal in Dr. Zhivago. This really was the year for her to come out in Dr. Zhivago, which is huge, made a ton of money. And then she was in Darling, which is, and John, I don't know how much you know about this, but it's like this swing 60s like propaganda type of film. And essentially she plays this woman in Britain who gets kind of like swept up in the like, oh, like look how great and grand like the new lifestyle is of wearing new clothes, going to these parties and apartments of young people. And it's it, it's a, a commentary and kind of being like, yeah, look, look at all this great stuff about like the swinging 60s in Britain and what's going on at that time socially. But it's not a very well-made film. I, you know, I think it's just a sign of the times for like why this movie won three Oscars, which it really had no business doing. Like Julie Christie was much better in Dr. Zhivago. The script really isn't that strong. Yeah. The costume design, like it deserved maybe for that just because it was like new and fantastic, but that doesn't amount to like for what the win for like the writing gets for it and for her to win best actress. So I think she just like got really, she was like, you know, uh, we've talked about the reconnaissance type of thing. Like maybe it was the Christie sans that we should have been talking about the entire time. But yeah, she has you know these two big movies that are popular at the time, and that's probably the reason why she did win over our Julie Andrews from The Sound of Music. So yeah, she won the year before. Maybe that was in people's mind that like, hey, like she won already for Mary Poppins. She kind of already had that big breakout role and not getting it for playing for Maria. I think like I would have picked me. I probably would have picked her though over Julie Christie, even even Julie Christie's performance was for Dr. Zhivago. I think I still would have won with Julie Andrews. Do you think Julie Andrews' performance is Academy Award worthy from The Sound of Music, or are you okay with like her not well, winning I mean, she just all? come off of a win. I think you're definitely right that that is kind of a part of the story there. I think it's hard to kind of pass that by without considering that. But, I mean, like I said, it's a wonderful performance. I think it's such a great performance. Not only is she singing all of her music, she's you know physically performing in such a wonderful way but she has such a like a dynamic range with the way she kind of can scream at the captain the way she can be soft and subtle and whisper to herself and dance alone you know it she shows such a big range in this film and i think that's that's oscar worthy for sure but i think this is also one of those years where it's like the two combined films calling it the year of julie christie you know pushing her she's like a new face in hollywood and she was like hard to look away from, you know, i watched only a third of Dr. Zhivago, but every scene she was in, I was like fascinated by her, like studying her face. Very interesting actress. I, I got to go out and, and watch Darling and some of her other films now. Best actor went to Lee Marvin for Cat Ballou as Kid, Shalene and Tim Strawn. This is Marvin's sole career nomination and Oscar win. Barring from his vast experience at playing bad guys, Marvin brought complexity to his roles as a leading man by incorporating elements of the thug. In 67, he delivered two of his most memorable performance in The Dirty Dozen and Point Blank. Neither of the two major films of the year, The Sound of Music or Dr. Zhivago, received any Best Actor nominations. Even more astonishing is the fact that the 
other prominent nominees in the Best Actor category were defeated by Lee Marvin, who won the award for his eccentric dual role as cold-eyed, ruthlessly evil desperado Tim Strawn and Strawn's aging, once-famous, drunken and whiskey-soaked twin gunman Kid Shaleen in the amusing small-budget Western spoof sleeper film directed by Elliot Silverstein, Cat Ballou. It was one of the rare and unusual times that the Academy rewarded and recognized a comedy performance in a sleeper film. Previous Best Actor winners for a comic performance include Clark Gable for It Happened One Night, James Stewart for The Philadelphia Story, moving it even many, many, many years later. I can think of like Jean Dujardin for The Artist. Like that's more of a comedy type of role. I'm trying to think of like other movies like with Best Actor. That was like a comedy role. Is there anything that comes to no, mind? No, I think it really hit it on the head that it's just it's a rare sight. You know, people just don't give Best Actor Oscars to the comedic role. I feel like if they do, it's a supporting role for you know the actress or actor, but it just doesn't happen very often. And I think it really comes down to usually the Best Actor actress is kind of tied with the film and usually it's a film that's nominated and how many times do comedies get nominated you know I think we hit on that for sure when it comes to some of our films but it just it's very rare it just doesn't happen so I was thinking about that as well like how can we push it more and more but it's it's becoming less and less because I think we're getting less and less comedies and we're certainly not getting comedies that have the dual nature of being both serious awards contender while also being a funny comedy. So, I mean, it's interesting. It's it's such a weird phenomenon about the Academy, and they just kind of refuse to, to honor comedic films. And why that is, I think they just look at them as lower. And, and maybe that goes hand-in-hand hand with actors, is that, you know, men in comedic films, it's easier. I, that's the only thing that really makes sense, is it's easier to, to have a funny comedic performance, which I don't agree with, but that just kind of seems the way the Academy views comedic films and comedic performances. Yeah, maybe. And maybe just the vote was very split from this year. I mean, I guess I have to, I have to see Cat Ballou to understand that a little bit more. I mean, I, I think I said it before. I think I said it when we were doing our Lawrence Arabia podcast, would have picked Omar Sharif for Dr. Zhivago, but he gets You're snubbed. It is crazy. Yeah. Like, even and, this year, like, there's not even a single comedy film that you could point out and be like, yeah, that person deserves best actor. Like, it just, it doesn't happen. Like, what are you going to say? Johnny Knoxville and Jackass Forever gets a best actor nomination this year? Like, no. Kevin Smith. <laughs> I mean, I would love Clark's that. Three. Deserves like best supporting, honestly. It's phenomenal. Not him personally, but there's there's a performance in there. I mean, what? I mean, Jeff yeah, Anderson? Maybe. Yeah. I mean, oh my God. Brian, Brian O'Halloran in that. Just to get on the first three <laughs> tangent really quickly. Brian, oh my God, do I ball like a baby during that one scene with Brian O'Halloran and, and Rosario Dawson? Yeah, this is just oh the God. time to say go go watch Clerks 3. It's on streaming platforms now. And even if you haven't seen the first two, just go see it. I think you'll still have a fun time and you'll probably cry still too, even without the context. Wait, does that mean... I mean, you can buy. Uh, it I don't now. know if it's just streaming to rent now, or you can buy it fully. But I think you can buy it fully now because it comes out in a couple days, like a week or so, on physical media. So soon. Well, I am about to search for this, John. <laughs> while you do, best, best director, director went to Robert Weiss for *The Sound of Music*. This is Weiss' third and first of the evening out of total of four Academy Award wins. He previously won Best Picture and Best Director for West Side Story, only 
a couple episodes ago. So obviously we praised the film so heavily. We haven't talked too much about Robert Weiss, but I think I want to really want to praise him for just his realism, his ability to make a film that is fantastical and a fully bright musical, but his knowledge and his craftsmanship to know that like a film that may be so out there and it may be bright and dazzling and, and beautiful and it's so dramatic and all these wonderful songs, but it also has to be grounded in a world. And seeing watching this film just makes me want to watch more of his films because I just love a good setting. And I love the way that he can kind of visualize us and introduce us to the world, much like he does in West Side Story, and bring us into a world that is so grand and, and real and so bright, but it also feels grounded at the same time. Best picture. The nominees were A Thousand Clowns, Ship of Fools, Dr. Zhivago, Darling, and the winner of the 1965 Best Picture winner at the 38th Academy Awards went to The Sound of Music to producer Robert Wise. The Sound of Music was the first Best Picture winner since Hamlet, 1948, to win without a screenwriting nomination and would be the last film until Titanic in the 90s to not receive a screenwriting nomination and win. Wise is one of nine producers to win Best Picture multiple times. So, John, before we get into any of our final thoughts and our ratings for The Sound of Music and answering that question, here are some stats and figures. The Rotten Tomatoes percentage on The Sound of Music is an 83, with an average rating of an 8.08. The top critics percentage is a 71, with an average top critic rating of 7.6. The audience score is a 91, with an average rating of 4.39. IMDb gives it an 8. Metacritic gives it a 63. And it won 5 total awards out of 10 nominations. So as we open up the podcast before talking about film criticism and how polarizing the sound of music is, tying it all back, reading off those numbers, John, is that a little shocking to you that the critics like really don't like this movie? The top critics are on Tomatoes for what that wor- is worth. There's 71% of them give it a fresh, so that means 29%. Think it's not good. That's a large percentage. And even for the audience, the audience score is a 91. So to have a 71 for the tops critic, an 83 for just all critics, but then a 91 for the audience, that's staggering and kind of shows, again, that polarization that this movie is very popular. For at the time that it won and came out, it was also the biggest box office movie of all time. And then when you adjust for inflation and then Gone with the Winds re-releases in theaters, Gone with the Wind took the spot. Like it's it's crazy how to deal with inflation and the top box office movie of all time. But this movie was like that popular and reached that like nexus point of it is popular, it is box office worthy, and people love it. And it's getting some critical praise to the point where it wins Best Picture. So tying it all back, John, like what are your thoughts on how the critics rated it, how all the numbers break down, and then how we actually the audience and us feel about the movie. In yeah, general. It, it's pretty astonishing to look at something like uh, My Fair Lady, which is 95% on Rotten Tomatoes, while this has an 83. Like, that's that's astonishing to me. I mean, if you can go back and listen to My Fair Lady, you probably heard us comment already on how much we don't like that movie very much. And it's astonishing that people could watch this movie and just and not vibe with it. I don't know. It's It's a film with just so much joy and happiness that, like, 
if you were to really go against this film, poo-poo it, push it down, I think I, I think it kind of says something about you. I don't, I don't know. Like, there's this movie is so bright that if you were to really go against it, like you got to have something deep, dark, and inside, and and maybe that's what it is. Like you want to have some of that darkness, but I think this film does that. Like the film hints at a darker world that's kind of like a dark shadow, a dark cloud hanging over Maria and, and the family. And you do get that. It is life and death by the end of it. So I just don't understand how people just don't vibe with this movie. I think it's such a joyful, wonderful experience that leaves you with just a full heart. And who doesn't want a full heart, Ben? I don't know. And and I think that was the whole crux of like my issue with criticism and, and how people respond to this movie. It, it really just makes no sense. It's, I think it's like I hate for it just to hate on it and just to say like, oh, like screw the popular thing, like screw the mainstream. And does this movie deserve it? I don't really don't think so. I don't think it's like the corn. I'm trying to think of a movie that is popular, but it's like corny to the point where people are like, oh, it's so stupid. Like so, so baby and, and kiddish. Whereas this movie doesn't really have that. I know. I think it does have a G rating, but what does a G rating really mean for 65? It just, it, it's bizarre. It's really is bizarre to me that people could watch this movie and like, they just want to hate on it and their criticism of it really don't make that much sense to me. Unless you're just saying like, I don't ever want to buy into a fantastical aspect of movie making that I don't want to buy into that. Like, well, this is just the movie. And I know that sometimes we give movies shit for like, for us not buying into it, but this movie doesn't really seem like a movie that I would that I feel like I need to be like, no, I can't, I can't like, mm-hmm. I yeah. can't buy into it. You know, you've talked a lot about Dr. Zhivago, but I'm curious if to look at that film, to look at other films, like for a few dollars more, like where do they stand up? Or even like a repulsion by Polanski came out in 1965 or the flight of the Phoenix. Like there's some other heavy hitters that came out this year. How do you feel about those in comparison to the sound of music for best picture? Yeah, I, I, I think I, I think I would have voted for Dr. Zhivago mm-hmm. for Best Picture if I had the vote. I think just the love story and and that movie is not a fantasy or fantastical. It's the same thing with Lawrence of Arabia that he does is he takes and and this is based on a book, so it's not reality, but it's rooted in the Russian Revolution and and that era in the early nineteen hundreds and and where it all goes through with the rise of communism in Russia and so to me, like the whole love story aspect, the backdrop of it, how real it is, but also is treated like a fantasy is like why that movie is so good. It, it's reminiscent of Lawrence of Arabia with that vibe, that tone of, of, of how the movie is presented and, and created. And uh, I just love the, the how it, it's thematically told and, and put together what the story really is at its core, you know, when, and I don't want to spoil it for you, just like how it all gets tied up in the end. And what just what happens in the ending? It, it's really beautiful. It's it's a very well made movie. So I love Doctor Zhivago, but I Sound of Music is just it's the popular movie, and, and I think that at times for the Academy that that's okay to have the most popular picture winning instead of like maybe the more artsy, more auteur kind of film that David Lean was putting out, or really a bunch of other directors were putting out. That yeah, time as you're well. absolutely right, and. We haven't given our scores, so I will take the lead and, and say I gave The Sound of Music a 
90 out of 100. And that goes up there with my other 90s, which would be Gone with the Wind. We have Marty. And yeah, besides that, I still obviously have The Apartment as my lead here with 100. And then a couple in between there, like Best Years of Our Live at a 95 and The Bridge on River Quiet at a 97. So I am looking forward to watching Dr. Zhivago. I've, I enjoyed the beginning. I think it's a lot of setup to get to where the chunk of the story is going. So I look forward to that. And I will get back to you, Mr. Benjamin, on Dr. Zhivago. But tell me, what did you give The Sound of Music? I gave The Sound of Music a 92. Not a 90. But a 92, the way I said that made it sound like it was a <laughs> 90 as well. Anyways, yeah, I love this movie. I really, my the few things I was taking points off for was some of the lighting in the interiors in the Von Trapp house. Really weird lighting design there, but the outside is great, especially knowing that the deal with, deal with the rain and stuff. It's, you know, the three-hour runtime, I think, is like fine for the most part there. I... I, the nuns was the thing that I said that we could take out, but I think the big thing that and I didn't say this when we were talking about the movie that I think could totally be taken out of this movie and would be fine is the Rolf character. I think Rolf is like the 16 going 17 song is nice, but you didn't really need that song if you cut that out. And then it could have just been any young Austrian boy that turns into a Nazi that he could have, you know, that they tried to trap him at the end. And I think it would have been just as effective with what Captain Von Trapp does at the end, like getting them out and and confronting him. So it's nothing like too major, but yeah, I just felt this movie, 92, solid A movie, really no no major issues with that. So John, our ratings right now through 38 movies, you're at a 73.1 and I'm at a 75.9, really a 76 for rounding purposes. So we're still in that, you know, the 70s because of some poopers, like My Fair Lady, like a GG. So, but who knows? Maybe we'll go back up. Maybe we'll go back down. We'll see over the years. But I think for both of us to give that a 90, this is a lot about that. And it's definitely has to be the highest musical, highest rated musical on our list. So having a good time talking about the movie, talking about the Oscars. But John, I got to ask that question again. Is The Sound of Music worthy of the Best Picture Award of 1965? Absolutely. I think it's up there with one of the best musicals of all time with Singing in the Rain. And of course, I always say it, I need to watch more. I always need to watch more, but I love The Sound of Music. It is totally worthy. I disagree with your take on Rolf, and we can expand on that if we need to, but I love The Sound of Music. Ben, (laughs) is it worthy? It is worthy. (laughs) Yeah, it's still worthy. But you would pick Dr. Zhivago. I I, 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 yeah, it's it's one of those cases where, yeah, I would just pick Dr. Zhivago over it and has really nothing wrong to say about The Sound of Music. It's just my preference. And, and again, my opinion is nothing that everyone has to abide by. But go watch Dr. Zhivago. Watch all these other movies. I think that's the great thing about, again, that I've had with doing this podcast and going back through the years is that, okay, well, now I want to watch that movie. I remember when I first watched The Sound of Music and was tracking and putting it in our spreadsheet I was like, what's this Dr. Zhivago movie that got all these wins when Sound of Music should have won for Best Cinematography and blah, 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 blah. Then I was like, oh, yeah, that's a really good movie. I understand why that won now. So it opens the perspective. It, it's, you know, I love the journey that we've been on. I, again, like, I would love to call us critics just so we can get the movie screeners. And that's <laughs> yeah, so it. anyone that's listening and um, has that power, you can call us critics if you want. <laughs> yeah, please. 
<laughs> yeah, you can call me critic all you want. Just give me a screener. Any any final thoughts, John? Do you want? Are you sure you don't want to sing? Don't want to take us no, out? No, I cannot do, 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 me. do me. That's that's like the hardest song to sing probably in this whole movie. That's no, it's not. What? What? Fine. What do you think is the easiest song to sing? Then I don't know. I was just trying to get out of it. I don't want to sing. Climb every mountain, lazy. There we go. Climb every mountain, follow every rainbow, sing about your favorite things. You know, talk about how Doe is a deer, a female deer. Thanks for listening. I'm Ben. And I'm John. And And this this is worthy. Worthy. Well, that's about it from Mad, 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 Mad Hollywood. To you winners, congratulations. And to the rest of you, form a line and I shall lead you to the Mickey Rooney School of Acting. (laughs) I have a credit card there. The opinions expressed on this program tonight are those of the Academy. But the final decision is up to you at the box office. You make us or break us. You're the final arbiter, the Supreme Court. For in popcorn sales, there is truth. Our program has been brought to you through the courtesy of your neighborhood theater, be it drive-in or hardtop. Drop in tomorrow night and ask for them by name. Movies, the instant dream. They're available in all sizes and in a wide range of colors. I'm grateful for the part which I've been allowed to play in the motion picture industry and for what it has done for me. It has helped me support my government in the manner to which it has become accustomed. (laughs) It is a truly wonderful enterprise. Never before in history has there been a medium with such potential and at the same time such grave responsibility. But we have access as never before to the minds and hearts of people and especially the young. I'm proud to be connected with the great power that is motion pictures. It is definitely a force and a force for good. And so until next year at the same time, this meeting of the Great Society stands adjourned. Thank you and good night. Thanks for listening to Worthy, the breakdown of every Best Picture winner from past to present. You can listen to us wherever you get your podcasts. Check us out on Instagram at Worthy Podcast, on Twitter at Worthy Pod, and on Facebook at Worthy Podcast. Any inquiries can be submitted to worthysubmissions at gmail.com. Again, that's worthysubmissions at gmail.com.